was ages 4 to 7, dismissed to junior church. And if there's 8, 9-year-old, there's clipboards up here. So it is my intention today to finish the Magnificat, right? This will be week number three in this passage. And I say that's my intention because you never know. So we're in Luke chapter 1. We'll be looking specifically at verses 54 and 55 this week. Um, I'm going to also... Touch on verse 53 because I didn't feel like I did it justice last week. But just to review this passage. And this is, Mary has gone to Elizabeth, who is with child, with John the Baptist. And on that first encounter, up in verse 42, Elizabeth exclaims, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is His name. His mercy extends to those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped His servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. So you have this song of Mary in which she magnifies the Lord. We pointed, that's, it's called Magnificat because that is the opening phrase in the Latin right there in verse 46. The NIV I have says glorifies, but in your King James it would say, my soul magnifies the Lord. But it points to, she is pointing to the majesty of God throughout here and all the great things he has done and what he is doing in the coming of Christ as Savior. But looking this week, starting in verse 53, where it says, He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. And so a surface reading of that would make you think, well, God doesn't like those who are well off, right? He's sent the rich away empty. And, and he shows great favor to those who are poor, right? And there is, there is a truth to that, where there is a favor shown to the poor. We, we talked about this some in Sunday school today, where the pursuit of wealth is often a pursuit of self, and that being full of self can be the thing that prevents somebody from being able to be humbled to the point of receiving Christ. And I, when I'm gathering from this particular verse, verse, 
is that those with a spiritual hunger for Christ will have that hunger met with Christ, right? The very best thing. He has filled the hungry with good things. Those who have a spiritual hunger for the things of God will be filled with good things, with the things of God, the best thing. Christ is the best thing. He says, but he has sent the rich away empty. Those who think they have all the knowledge of what is true spiritually apart from God, those who think that they are rich apart from God are truly empty. Those who think they need nothing, who are full of their own righteousness, who see no need for Christ, they will remain that same way. It is in truthfulness, it is emptiness. There is nothing there. Turn to Romans chapter 9, verse 30. Romans 9, verse 30 says, What then shall we say, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith? But Israel, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. There was this idea within the, the religious rulers at the time, and it's not to say that it's true of all the religious rulers, but there was this idea that, well, we are the religious rulers, for, so therefore we are something special, right? And this points to you're not special. That is, should be a position of humility. Um, and those who recognize that humility are the ones who are a good, in a good position for Christ. And being right with God is the best thing. It is not obtained by good works or the things we do, but it is rather by faith in Christ. And we've been studying 1 Corinthians in our Sunday school also, and I, I touched on the passage at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 before, and we were looked at this some in the beginning of our class. But 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26, all the way through 31. Um, it says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. He has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, considering that in light of Mary's song in verse 53, where he says, He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Those who, who boast, boast in the Lord. Right? Those who are poor in spirit, who recognize their need for Christ, boast in the Lord. And those who think that they have it all without Christ are truly empty. And no one will stand before the Lord and point to themselves and say, Look what I did. Look how I got here. 
look at my accomplishments, God. I, I, I obviously deserve to be here because I'm so great. Instead, you will point to Christ and say, look at what he has done for me in the placing of faith in Christ and that the, the hungry filled with good things it makes me, that's what I think of is the, this recognizing the need for Christ, this hunger, hunger for, for Christ, and he fills that. The good things, the best thing. In verse 54, she says, He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. So I kind of wanted to give a little summary of that statement because it's a long statement. But I think what she's getting at is that the sending of Christ the Messiah is a great help to Israel, who is God's servant. It's an act of mercy to his people that he has helped his servant Israel by sending his Messiah. And it is an act of mercy on the part of God to do that. But she's pointing to Israel as servant. And when you think about Israel, as we go through the Old Testament, you don't always, Israel doesn't seem like a servant necessarily, right? They seem like they are, you know, they are set apart by God. They are chosen by God. And it just doesn't, what does servant mean in relation to Israel? But scripture talks about Israel as servant as sprinkled throughout the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 44, verse 21, it says, Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I have made you, you are my servant. O Israel, I will not forget you. So God points to Israel as his servant throughout the Old Testament. And so then I think, well, how to be a servant is to be in service, right? To, to serve God. How did Israel serve God? But Israel was set apart. They were to be different from the nations around them. And that was, their, that was how they served God, was being set apart. But as they served God, it's important to remember, it was not up to Israel to decide how they were going to serve God. They didn't get to choose how they served him. They didn't determine how best to do that. Right? God revealed and prescribed how they were to serve him, what was expected of this servant of his. And he revealed what was expected of them in the law. And so it was God's law that set Israel apart from the nations around them. And some of the ways that that law set them apart was they worshipped where they worshipped. At first, they worshipped in the tabernacle before the temple was built, right? A special set-aside place of which God gave all the instructions for its design and build and how they were to use that space. And then the temple was constructed. Again, he prescribed it. He said, here are the dimensions, here's what you are to do, here's how it is to be built, here's who is to do different aspects of that construction. He prescribed it. He told them.
So you have in their worship, and then you have thinking more upon how they worship God, you have the whole book of Leviticus, which is a prescription for how they worship God. You have laws that pertain to how they worship, how they offer sacrifices, how they do offerings, how they approach God in holiness and cleanliness. He set them apart with this. It is, they are different than the nations around them because of this. And besides just laws for worship, he then gave them their laws of how they were to relate to each other and to God. And thinking of Exodus chapter 20 through 24, right? We were all familiar with the Ten Commandments. We may not all be able to give you each and every ten of them because we're a little lax in our memorization of that. But you're familiar with the Ten Commandments. But even beyond the Ten Commandments in Exodus, there's even more, more laws that set them apart from the nations around them, that details human interactions that are vastly different than all those nations around them, that make them stick out. And in those human interactions, it it gives due justice and honor to the image bearers of God. When you treat your fellow image bearers rightly, God is glorified in that. And that's one of the things he was doing. Nations would look at Israel and say, wow, they treat each other so much better than we do. To be there would be a good thing. It would be of benefit. This is one of the ways that they served God was in their witness to the nations around them. And again, in those laws, there's the keeping of the Sabbath, that day of rest. And then there are the the different prescribed festivals that God gave them. So they're showing honor to God for all the good things he has done to them in remembrance of coming out of Egypt, being in the desert for 40 years. And then you even get into Deuteronomy. We have so much of the Old Testament in that beginning is dedicated to God's law. Deuteronomy points to a further explanation of God's law and a further explanation of his covenant and what the consequences will be for not following him. So I get this picture as just thinking, reflecting upon God's law and this idea that, you know, if the Israelites think they are great because God has chosen them and because they're so good, his law points to one thing about the law is that you can't keep it, right? It's, it becomes obvious. There's so many rules. You just can't do it all. And it points to the need for God. But it's a, this to serve, to, to, be, to be living by these laws that God gave was a service to God. It showed honor to him. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, it says what is to be, to be expected as a result of this. It says, See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me. This is, this is Moses speaking. So that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. 
Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near to them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? So God's law was to set the nation of Israel apart. It was to make them stand out. It was to draw other nations to God. It was, it was intended to make them different. And that was their service to God, was following those laws and glorifying him in it. And so that's one way he has helped his servant Israel. When I think of the servant Israel, I think of Israel's role that God had them play. And one of those was in keeping of the law. So I had Genesis 22 and verse 16. And so I'm going to get into when we talk about Abraham, we'll talk, look at many of the different covenants and the promises God made to Abraham. But this particular one, Genesis 22, verse 16, it is... Just looking, starting in verse 15, I guess. It says, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your holy son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the star in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And this promise of God for, for doing what he's commanded. And this was to Abraham. And what he's, this is what the nation of Israel is going to be. You know, they're, through their, his offspring, which is the nation of Israel, all nations on earth will be blessed. And then... Because she's saying he has helped his servant Israel, this nation that is set apart to God, and remembering to be merciful. And God's remembrance of mercy is the keeping of the promises and covenants that he made with Abraham, where she says, remembering to be merciful to Abraham. And it's interesting thinking about this, like, well, how much time has gone by from Abraham to the birth of Christ? Well, it's been almost 2,000 years. It's a significant chunk of time. And yet, God is remembering those promises, and he is keeping them, and he is fulfilling them in this time through Mary, through the bringing of the Messiah. But I want to look, as she mentioned, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants. Well, what was the mercy that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants? That verse I just looked at was one of those. 
But back to Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis for a little bit here. But Genesis chapter 12 is where you first, you're first introduced to Abraham. He's mentioned in the end of chapter 11 through some genealogies. But in Genesis 12 is the beginning of God's interactions with Abram. And at this time, he is not Abraham, he is Abram. He hasn't had his name changed yet. That is coming. But this is Abram here. But in verses 1 through 3, you have God's first promise in his first interaction with Abram. And this is the promises of God's mercy. But it says, The Lord said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And that very last phrase, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, is... How are all people on earth blessed through Abraham? Well, Christ is a descendant from the line of Abraham. We learned that Josh looked at the genealogy in Matthew. And if you go back and look at that, you'll see it begins with Abraham. Abraham and then goes down through generations. But Christ is that descendant of Abraham who will now bless all people on earth. All the nations. Galatians 3, 6 through 8 talks about that blessing of Abraham. Where it says, Consider Abraham, he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So in Paul's writing Galatians, he's pointing right back to that that scripture we just looked at in God's initial promise to Abraham, where he says all, all the nations, and that those who believe are children of Abraham. If you are in Christ, you can say you are a child of Abraham. You have now been adopted into that family. You are a partaker in his prom- the promise made to Abraham. You are a receiver of that blessing. So that's, that is God's first promise to Abraham, that he make him a great nation and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed. And the next one I wanted to look at was getting into God's covenant with Abraham. And it was interesting as I, I looked at this and thought about and studied some what covenants were. And I realized I didn't have a good understanding of covenant necessarily. Um, and I think our modern world and culture doesn't really use covenants not quite the same. The, the closest thing we have might be a contract. And a contractor and a covenant are, are similar, but they are not the same. And I'll get into that more. 
But in this passage, it begins in verse verse 4. It says, you know, then the word of the Lord came to him and says, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, You, so shall your offspring be. Saying to Abram, Your offspring are going to be more than the stars you can count in the sky, pointing to those that would come after him. And in the meantime, Abram doesn't even have any children of his own. But it says in verse 6, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. So Abram had faith in what God told him, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And it says, he also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So he wants a sign. Like, how can I know that you're going to follow through on this? In verse 9, he says, So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. It's, these, it's interesting thinking. All these animals that are listed are all animals that are suitable for sacrifice to the Lord. But that law has not been given yet. That happens later. But at this time, it is pointing to that. In verse 10 it says, Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And you read that where it says, well, he cut all these animals in half and like laid them out. And you're like, what in the world is going on? When's the last time you cut a bunch of animals in half, laid them out, and made an aisle surrounded by animals, right? It sounds pretty strange. Right, But this is, they made covenants back then, and this is how they made a covenant, is they would cut these animals in half, lay them out, and then the partakers in this covenant would walk between the animals, and that was their agreement, that was their handshake, that was their signature at the end. But it was saying, as we walk through this, that if I don't keep up what I pledged I'm going to do, may I be cut in half. May the consequences of my failure to keep the covenant I have pledged be that I am cut in half. So it was a serious thing to enter into covenant with somebody. And that's how they often did a peace treaty or a, a, a land that was given to a servant was through covenant. It was a serious thing. But it says, Abram did this. He laid these animals out for the covenant process to take place. But God doesn't show up. It's to the point where birds of prey are coming down, but Abram has to drive them away. Right? He's trusting the Lord's going to do this. He's driving the birds of prey away. And then in verse 12 it says, As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. And a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. He's been at this long enough that he eventually falls into a deep sleep. He can't stay awake any longer. Verse 13 says, Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. 
The fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So this is, you'd be familiar with the account of the Israelites and their enslavement under Pharaoh in Egypt and them leaving. God is foretelling Abram of, of this. And it's amazing to think, what was Abram thinking when, when he hears, this is going to be 400 years and your descendants will be enslaved? Like Our concept of time, I think, is so short, right? We don't see past our own, our own lifetime. And he's pointing to Abram saying, 400 years they're going to be in slavery and then they're going to come out with great possessions. This promise I'm promising you, you're not even going to see it. You will, but here's what's going to take place. You are going to be blessed. This is a long-term thing. It's not going to happen in your lifetime. But then in verse 17, it says, When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the rivers of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. So he's pointing to this, this land of Canaan, which was where God had told him to go in the first place, because that would be his inheritance. But he's saying, your descendants, who are going to be enslaved for 400 years, will inherit this land of all these people. But it's not going to happen for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure, right? There are things that have to take place before we get to that. But in this making of the covenant, the, one of the most interesting things here is it is God who passes through the animals. Abram is asleep. This is a covenant that God is making, and he is the one who will accomplish it. It is not Abram who will accomplish it. God will use Abram to accomplish it, but it is God who will do it. And God is swearing by himself. God is saying, if I don't do what I tell you I'm going to do, may I be cut in half. He is making the promise. And it is not up to Abram to make it happen. But thinking about, so what is a covenant versus a contract, right? The closest thing we have is a contract. We don't practice covenants, at least not quite like they did, right? But a covenant is a pledge to do something, regardless of the other's actions. It's an unconditional promise. It's saying, I will do this. If you don't keep up your end of the bargain, I will still do this. I am promising to do this. It is my pledge. In a contract, you have both parties agree to do something, and if the other party doesn't do what they say they're going to do, you don't have to do what you have to do. You can say, well, you broke the contract. We're not doing it. In a covenant, I'm doing it regardless whether you keep up your end or not. Covenant is beneficial to the other party. It may not be beneficial to you but it's beneficial to them. Uh, biblical covenants are not usually between equal parties. Out, the pledges that they make may not be of equality. You may be pledging to do something greater than the other will do. Our contracts are generally, you do this, I will do something in return that is an equal 
measure. You pay me this amount of money, I will provide this amount of equipment for that money. It is an equal trade. Covenant is not necessarily done in equality, but it is a pledge. And a covenant is permanent. It does not run out. It is lasting. It cannot be broken, as opposed to a contract. A contract, both parties can come together and say, circumstances are not working, the funds are not available, and maybe you're supposed to be making me these things and your factory burned down. So let's just agree to walk away from this because we can't fulfill this contract, or, or maybe it's no longer necessary, right? But that's not the case with a covenant. A covenant is a permanent thing. The other thing that was interesting as I was looking at covenant, and this, this one was pointing towards marriage more specifically, but covenant requires confrontation and forgiveness because a covenant implies a relationship. It's more than just a business transaction. It is there's a relationship between the two parties. But when one party is not keeping up their end of the deal, it doesn't say, well, the contract is broken. It says, hey, I will confront you, and I will say, you are not keeping up your end of the deal. Let's, let's figure this out so it is being fulfilled properly because this is a pledge between two parties, and it doesn't expire. It can't be broken. And so in thinking through covenant, it's the... The one thing we still have, I think, that is covenant that we don't necessarily think of like that is marriage. Christian marriage is a covenant. It is a pledge between two people to love and honor each other as long as you both shall live, right? And our culture tends to approach it as more of a contract where, well, if you don't love me, then I don't have to love you in return, right? I can get out of this thing if you're not keeping up your end or if I don't feel like it anymore. Um, if, we're, if there's no longer, we're not happy about it, then we can split it off and we can go our separate ways. Well, it's, Christian marriage is a covenant. It is meant to be, if it's not working out, then it is to be corrected, not broken. It is a lifelong thing. And as a lifelong thing, it is intended to be worked on that confrontation and forgiveness is important but that's the one it's like the closest thing in our culture and society that is covenant that is still covenantal is marriage but this covenant with abraham right this is god making this he has made this pledge to him and this is a pledge that is beneficial to abram It's also beneficial to God because, as I said, Israel serves God and gives him glory over such a great period of time. From the time that first covenant's given until Christ comes was almost 2,000 years. So you have in Genesis 15 that giving of the covenant, God's promise of mercy to Abraham, of giving his people a land when he yet doesn't even have any sons. And then 
you get the reaffirmation of the covenant in Genesis 17, in which God gives Abram the covenant of circumcision. And he, at this time, Abram's name is changed from Abram to Abraham. And so Abram means exalted father, which points more towards Abram's father, Terah, than it does to Abram. When God changes his name to Abraham, he now be, name means father of a multitude of nations. The name change points to who God has made Abraham to be, the father of a multitude of nations. And he gives him this covenant of circumcision, this external marker, signifying Abraham's descendants will worship God, that those who are of Abraham will carry this this mark, but they will belong to God as part of this covenant. But God made this promise to Abraham to show mercy to Abraham and his seed forever. But it seems like, well, it was 2,000 years, right, since he made that until the Messiah came. Like, God is awful slow about doing things. And it's easy for us to look at that and say, yeah, that's, that's God's pretty slow. But I want you to think about it more of God has steadfast love. His love is enduring. It is steadfast. It is unchanging. He is working out his plan in time. And maybe it's not going the way you think it should, but, you're, but he is working it out. And what you think it should be is not necessarily what God says it should be. But his love is unchanging and it is unconditional. He is working that plan out. So that's what I think Mary is pointing at when she says, let me get back to, back to Luke there. When she says, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants. She's looking back at the mercies of God shown to his people who are set apart to him because of a promise that he made to Abraham 2,000 years ago. And that promise ultimately extends to all nations through Christ. That the mercifulness that she is referring to is the coming of the Messiah, of Christ coming, of a way being made for sin to be taken care of, for all people to be made right with God. And so, like we said Over those 2,000 years, there's many ups and downs for Israel. You have Israel walks with God, and they prosper, and you have Israel follows other gods, and God punishes them. And that was part of a, a promise that they made with God back in Deuteronomy 28. And he said, if you walk with me, I will show you blessings. But if you follow after other gods, there will be curses for you. But if you correct your ways, I will bring you back. So all the ups and downs of Israel over those 2,000 years was the steadfast love. It is long-suffering. In that remembrance of that promise in Genesis 12, verse 3, where he says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And him providing Christ, providing the Messiah. 
So thinking back on this, is thinking, do you recognize all the blessings that Christ has given you in your life? All the good things you receive. We have a tendency to take them for granted. We, I talked some in, I think, the first message about how generations have been blessed because of Christ. Our world is so different because of Christ. All the different advances we have because people looked at Christ and said, this is going to change the way I think, right? The fact you're sitting in a building with lights and plumbing and walls and insulation and heat, right? All these great things of the blessings of God. We take them for granted. We tend, to, we tend to focus on difficult things we have going on. And it's not to minimize difficulty in life. But it is in the midst of difficulty, remember the blessings of God, the many good things he has done for us. And the greatest blessing is Christ, to be in right relationship with God, forgiveness of sins, to no longer have that barrier between you and God to be made right which has been made available through Christ, the Messiah, that Mary was pointing to. Close in a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for your steadfast love and mercy to generations, your promise to Abram that we all can take part in, Lord, that you have fulfilled your covenant, and you are still working to fulfill it, and that we can be partakers in that. Thank you for that. Help us to recognize all the many good things you've given us, to not take them for granted, uh, and, to, and to be able to rest in our, our salvation, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Pretty interesting how it goes along with this song. We uh, are under his wings. I am safely abiding. Though the night deepens and tempests are wild, still I can trust him. I know he will keep me. He has redeemed me and I am his child. What a strong statement. What a relationship we have that's permanent because he makes it permanent. He draws us into a relationship where we can trust him, not just through life here, but forever because we will always be in a relationship with him. So let's stand and sing verses 2 and 3. I just read verse 1. So you can stand and sing verses 2 and 3. Under his wings, number 443. <clears throat> Under his wings, what a refuge in sorrow. How the heart yearningly turns to his rest. Often when earth has no balm for a healing, there I find comfort and there I am blessed. Under his wings, under his wings, who from his love can sever? Under his wings my soul shall abide, safely abide forever. Under his wings, oh what precious enjoyment, 
There will I hide till life's trials are o'er. Sheltered, protected, no evil can harm me. Resting in Jesus, I'm safe evermore. Under his wings, under his wings, who from his love can sever? Under his wings, my soul shall abide, safely abide forever. Gracious Father, we're thankful for your word that you give us so we might know you. We might know of the relationship you have with us. What you did to do it, the payment of Christ in dying and shedding his blood in the guarantee because he rose again to conquer death. You have brought us into a relationship in which we are yours forever and you care for us even through the hardest things of this life and this earth. You are our constant companion. We are free because of you. We know you, and that is true freedom. Help us to remember that as we leave, to rejoice in all that you've done for us, and especially for the very fact that we are safe in your arms forever. Thank you so much for this day, for the preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen. You're dismissed.